0: If you go into a practice and you feel like you can't ask for time off or time to take care of yourself, that's a red flag. You should be able to go to your people and say, hey, I need to leave this afternoon. Welcome back to That Vet Life. I have a very special episode for y'all this week as I was put in the hot seat by my friend and mentee, Cole Upton. Cole is a rising third year vet student who in this episode asked me the burning questions most vet students and new grads want to ask but are often too scared to. So from mentorship and contracts to gaining clinical confidence, no question was off limits in this special Q&A episode that definitely made me sweat at times. We had too much fun recording this episode and I can't wait to have Cole back at some point for part two. So with that, let's jump into today's episode. I've been looking forward to recording this type of episode just because, like we talked about earlier, like I am a couple years removed from vet school. You are in the trenches of vet schools. So there's a lot of value that will come out of this. But at the same time, I'm like, the kind of conversations that we end up having, like they just bunny trail. They (laughs) really do.
1: They really do.
0: I think this will be really valuable, but also possibly really hilarious and the poor editing team might have a hard time with us they're gonna be like never record with cole again (laughs) i have no idea what's happening right now oh gosh well i guess we'll, we'll give people a little bit of a backstory how do we know each other cole
1: yeah so i was a baby first year and i got an email saying hey guys you're getting set up with like a mentor from your regional area and I said, as an out of state student, I do not understand how you guys just selected someone for <laughs> me because everyone's like, oh, yeah, I got the person that I used to work with, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I don't, I'm gonna get some chicken farmer from middle of nowhere, Maryland, or something. I'm gonna have nothing in common with them. <laughs> and then I get you, and you have lived this like worldly experience of studying abroad, and you're fresh into the workforce, and you basically, represented the manifestation of everything terrifying about veterinary medicine aka being a first year clinician <laughs> <laughs> and I was like this is such an opportunity to sink my teeth in and I immediately just went full force on you I was like tell me about contracts tell me about like what you're doing what how was seeing your first patients what's going on and I think in that way it really offered us a unique relationship of you know, I'm talking to a veterinarian who's talking to me like they're still a vet student because this is so new to them too. And it was just this amazing thing where I had an equal, but also a mentor and someone to look up to and a role model. And it was, it's just been amazing. It's (laughs) been so cool.
0: Well, first off, I think you definitely like I can't live up to that expectation that you just set. I'm over here like, oh man, am I really, I don't, oh gosh, I don't think I can reach that. But thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very similar from like, I basically joined the veterinary association for our state and mm-hmm. they're like, hey, we're going to pair you with a, a mentee if you want. And I was like, click yes if you want to subscribe. I was like, yes. I was like, oh gosh, who am I going to get? That <laughs> was that same question. Because it's like, there's no matching process. It's no. just... Literally, I think they put your name in a bowl and they picked it out and they're like, these two, you're going to be mentor and mentee. Good luck. (laughs) And I was like, okay, here we go. And just like, you're like, I'm going to get a chicken farmer. Well, I'm definitely not a chicken farmer from (laughs) Illinois. I'm just someone from like the Northeast States. Right. And honestly, like it, like I was really impressed with you when we first started chatting. I was like, "Man, this kid's got a good head on his shoulders." Um, he's asking a lot of really good questions, which made me sweat sometimes. I was like, "How is he? Like, how is he coming up with these questions?" Oh my gosh! <laughs> and I was like, "I gotta like scramble to find an answer for you." Yeah. But it's been really fun, and like granted, over the past couple of years, like as you've gotten more confident in your studies. We haven't had to reach out near as often, but I try and like send a lot of like text messages to be like, "Here's this case. What do you think?" Just to yeah. like give you something exciting and re- be like, "Hey, remember, clinical practice is exciting. It's gonna be fun." <laughs> so
1: you're like, "Look at all these medical mysteries I'm seeing as I'm like in the middle of an exam and walk out of it. I'm like, oh my god, I don't know what I'm." <laughs> <doing."> <laughs>
0: Oh, which to also follow up on that cat that I sent you last time, came back as eosinophilic yeah. keratitis. It's doing great. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, even like a lot of these cases, that, to be fair, a lot of them, I'm like, you're in vet school. You have access to the specialist and you're learning all the crazy weird zebras. So when in doubt, ask the vet student. They know more <laughs> yeah. than you usually.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We are in the trenches, man. They're throwing <laughs> everything at us. They tell us we're drinking from a fire hydrant right now. and. Yes. Every day I believe it a little more.
0: Yes. It honestly feels like that. And you will be amazed how much of it falls out of your head when you walk pa- across that stage at graduation.
1: <laughs> when, the oh, second man. I click submit on my Navli, I'm forgetting anything to do with ungulates. I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to think about a horse ever again.
0: <laughs> so you'll be going into small animal medicine. That's made clear. Correct. <laughs> Well, uh, I think we're starting to go down a bunny trail here, so i'm gonna I'm gonna try and steer us all back here, please do, but I really wanted to hand this whole episode over to you as much as possible, yeah, because similar to the conversations we've had, like, I know you have a ton of questions that veterinary students or pre vet students or mm-hmm. even new grads are thinking, but they feel they aren't able to get those answers out of their clinicians or maybe they don't have a mentor or or whatnot mm-hmm. so. You're going to ask me, I'm going to be put in the hot seat here. This is making me a little bit nervous, quite honestly, because I don't know what you'd come up with, but we'll kind of bounce it back and forth. So Cole, take it away.
1: Yeah. So just a little about myself. I am a rising third year here at Virginia Techs Vet School. I'm originally from a little small town called Chapin, South Carolina. Went to Clemson University for undergrad, left on my third year and came here with nothing but passion and excitement. And it's been the most humbling and exciting experience of my life thus far. Starting off, I want to preface all of these questions by saying that the advantage of having a mentor that you trust and trusts you and you have that intimate relationship opens the door to the professional no-no questions. This is how I like to look <laughs> at it. I mean, those are the questions I have written. These are the questions that you never really are given the opportunity to ask someone because there's just never a correct environment for it. And that's why I'm super excited to get down and dirty with it. So boy, here we go. (laughs) I've kind of got it broken up into like mentorship and then contracts and workplace and then the transition from veterinary student to veterinarian.
0: All right, Um, let's do this. Fire away.
1: So within mentorship, I was talking to a clinician and they were like, you need to set aside your personal definition of mentorship, develop it in your head and walk into any interview with that being your expectation of what you're getting from your workplace. And so I'm really curious to hear from you who's worked through kind of that you know training wheels were on you were seeing your own patients you had a data bank of information you had people to talk to and now it's like worst case scenario you're you're asking someone for emotional support of holding a body wall when you're doing a gastropaxy like you've made that transition so in retrospect i feel like your definition of mentorship would be pretty valuable to hear about
0: mhm So, oh gosh, yes. Defining mentorship, that is one that, again, it's going to be unique to each individual. So your definition may very well be different than my definition of what I personally needed. And I'd split it into like clinical mentorship, like the medicine side of mentorship, and then also like the professional development side of mentorship, because the medicine will come. Like That's not the hard part about being a doctor. It is Mm the the people side. (laughs) And that can be really challenging. (laughs) So I was given a little bit of a framework, both through AHA and then through a few other mentors to be like, hey, what are the kind of things that I should think about and come up with a decision for myself? And one of them was basically like, who my mentor is going to be, I had to vibe with them. Honestly, is a a very hipster term. (laughs) Um, I had to get along really well. I was like, do people still say vibe? (laughs)
1: You're the I'll young you one here. Yes. I'll let you okay. believe the answer to that is yes.
0: Oh, gosh. This makes me feel so old. Um, <laughs> I had to get along with them and had to have similar viewpoints as them. That's a more professional way of saying it. Mm. And that I figured out just by having conversations with the potential mentor in my practice. And I realized that, hey, we have a lot of the same values and we joke similarly. So I knew I'd get along with them really well. And then I started asking the questions that were more like bullet points to be like, hey, like how often are we going to meet to go over questions and to go over cases? Like for me, my goal was to do that, like have a sit down once a week. Did that happen? No. Ended up working that we're on the same surgery day. So between cases, we just fired off questions then. So it worked out well. Other things being like, how long are my appointments going to be? Like, having a three month framework of being like, month, w- like, first two weeks, first month, how long are my appointments going to be? What type of appointments am I going to see? And building it up from there. And then also, like, from the surgical aspect. The scary <laughs> Thank- <part. laughs> yeah. The scary part, like, how long are you going to be by my side? Like, for me, I wanted someone that was going to handhold. Honestly, I wanted them there for every surgery, for every pre anesthetic, post op. Like, I wanted them side by side with me for a certain amount of time. And as I grew in my confidence, I was like, okay, like I actually got to the point where I was like, you can go away now. Yeah. (laughs) Like, take the leash off. Let me go. I needed to make some errors or mistakes within reason on my own to kind of grow and develop. And we got to that point.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So, asking those kind of questions.
1: I think one part of, that that I'd love to hear you elaborate on is you said, you know, we we got along well and our values aligned. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about, you know, I'm looking for someone to handhold in the beginning because at the end of the day, as medical professionals, our inherent concern is the well-being of our patients and you want them to receive the best care. And when you view your care as subpar to your mentor, clearly you you want that handholding. But at the end of the day, you know, they're going to be instilling the medicine that aligns with those values as you work through it. So what are those exact aspects that you're talking about?
0: So ooh goodness, this is a good question. Can you just do all my podcasts now? <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, so values-wise, gosh, one big one is that I want to practice as close to gold standard medicine as I possibly can. Thankfully, where mm-hmm. I'm located in the US, I have the like referral and specialists coming out of my yeah. ears. I have all the fun tools and toys at my practice to at least provide this level of care to my patients. And my mentor, honestly, even though he's been in the profession for so long, he's constantly trying to stay up to date with the newest thing. And he's very open to me bringing new ideas because there definitely have been things we butted heads on or Mm -hmm. things that he's been like, I've been doing it this way for 40 years. Why are you trying to change my patterns? And I'm like, well, I have this research paper and it's, <laughs> like these five publications. And he's like, Yeah, sure. Okay. Whatever, kid, go do it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But
0: he's willing to have those conversations. So that was a big thing is being able to sit down, kind of butt heads on things, but do it in an edifying manner. That would be the biggest thing. And I think feel that crosses both the medical side and the more professional development side is no matter what's going on like even and being willing to just like sit down and be like hey I have this personal thing going on can you be a sounding board for me yeah. those were all big things that were important to me granted for some other people they're like I don't want someone who can be all touchy feeling and listening to my own personal problems like I don't want that and that's fine if that's for you but for me I wanted someone that really wanted more of a family type of feel. And that's where we aligned professionally and then also medically. Again, we want to do what's best and be able to provide the best. Granted, we have not every single case is going to do the top level. Not every case should do the top level of care. But being able to A, provide that and then provide a ton of other options. So those would be the kind of values that I was looking into. Gotcha. If that answers your question.
1: It does answer my question. Very thorough. Thank you. On the flip side, we're looking at it right now, you are a mentor as well. And the one part of that that's super interesting to me is how do you assess and discern your mentee's strengths and what they need and, you know, looking at their communication style and, you know, you're seeing them skyrocket in growth in these certain aspects of their veterinary career and then in other ways you're like, oh, this kid needs help here. How do you guide in the way that best suits the individual because i know that you do that i see the cogs turning i know that it's personalized
0: so on the one aspect i am to a degree leaning on like you as the mentee to utilize your own emotional intelligence and self-awareness which like in our conversations it just came out that you like you personally are really self-aware of like where you are mentally where you are like confidence wise mm-hmm. and to that respect, I feel like I can really trust you and your own evaluations to be like, hey, where are you struggling? Like, what's going on? And from there, I can say, all right, these are the things that you see as a problem or you see as a challenge or an area of growth. And from there, I can be like, okay, now I can connect you, either connect you to a person or figure out what your communication style is and go and start like building the baby little building blocks from there.
1: Like texting me pictures of cytopathology every single day
0: of (laughs) my (laughs) life. Exactly. Just like that. (laughs) So yes, a lot of it comes down to like, if you have a mentee that's really self-aware, like that makes my job a lot easier because then I'm not having to ask as many hard questions and really poke the bear, if you will. Mm -hmm. Whereas other times, like when I've had students in The clinic, granted, I haven't had too many because I've only been in practice for coming up on three years. And sometimes I just have to give them something and see how they do with it and then say, all right, they really struggled and they didn't come to me for help. Like, where's the disconnect there? And figure out, was it a they're not comfortable coming to me with a question or they just didn't know enough to come to me with a question? Like, that's very different. And it's not always clear cut, but a little bit of trial and error right now I think would be the main thing. So when I have a very self-aware person, it makes my job easy. When they're not as self-aware, I have to do a little bit more digging and really evaluate what's going on when they interact with other people and when they interact with cases to ask the right questions and help bring about that awareness for them. Because I don't know if you've seen it for yourself, but when Someone gives you the answer, you don't learn it near as well as when you've come to the realization on your own. Yeah. So if you absolutely. are asked the right questions and then you're like, "Oh, I realize that about myself. It's going to a hurt less." <laughs> yeah. But also provide more of a basis for growth than if I came to you and said, "Hey, I'm noticing this about you."
1: That's true. That's it's, I think a really interesting aspect of what you just talked about that exists Especially in veterinary academia, is, you know, you look at our relationship, it's definitely a dance. It was you welcoming me with open arms and making a a suitable, comfortable educational environment for me. And then me being able to let down the guards and go, hey, I suck at this. Or hey, like, am I as good at this as I think I am? (laughs) That kind of thing. And I truly believe that it's the mentor's job in the beginning to set that stage. And what the mentee does with it is how much they get out of the opportunity. And you look at, you know, there are specific individuals in veterinary academia that are very proud of where they are and their position within a college and their teaching style cannot be conducive to all students, whether that's a form of embarrassment or, you know, kind of rubbing their nose in it when they get something wrong. And I think it's super important to do what's best by the individual. And I think the starting point for that, therefore, has to be kind of what we do. And that is the kind of mentorship that I'm looking for in practice as well. But I know a lot of people that don't have it, that are, you know, first year veterinarians and they don't have it and they have the thing I just described instead. And it it makes it a very difficult learning environment.
0: And I feel like we have a unique position because, like, I'm not far removed from vet school. So I remember what it was like to feel like you have to know everything all the time and just feeling really incompetent and lacking. Mm -hmm. And I don't want – like, I don't want to set someone up for failure. I want to – provide them with enough basis that they feel confident to grow and ask the questions. And that's the other thing is like, I'm not someone who's 20, 30 years removed and you have this like hierarchy status. What I hope is I can come across at this specific stage in my career. Granted, when I am 10 years removed, it's not going to be as easy to have these kind of conversations just because of the time removal. And sometimes you can't cross that barrier very easily. But right now, kind of like what you said in the beginning, like it's, like I'm familiar enough. You can ask those questions without feeling silly or something, just because I'm familiar. Like I get it. And I don't want to make anyone feel bad for asking a question. Like usually sometimes I get overexcited when they do. And I'm like, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. And they're like, oh my gosh. Right. Right. Like, sorry, got excited.
1: Well, that's all I really have for mentorship. And I feel like you use and abuse it on this podcast because so many people (laughs) need to learn about it. But I wanted to touch base on... Yeah, definitely. The next kind of subject I've got is the scary one. So contracts and navigating the workplace and kind of just like outlining those expectations for yourself and like when you're ready to take those training wheels off. This one's a little looser as far as specificity because I'm interested to kind of have you go down your bunny trails with that I (laughs) know so my favorite question on this list it it may feel frazzled but I want to ask it so badly so we're doing it when you don't know the answer to something what do you do like where do you go and you know every professor we ever have in vet school is you know oh like don't memorize this for the exam or the NAVLE. This is just for your notes so that when you're in practice, you'll go, oh, I think Dr. So-and-so taught me about this. And so let me go back to that. I'm not going back to my notes <laughs> and filing through it to figure out what freaking antibiotic to use for this super rare condition when I know there are updated references mm-hmm. that I could be using. And yes. they don't tell us that information here.
0: That is so true. Like when they're in vet school, they're like, oh, you can use your notes. And... Yes, if you have some cheat sheets that you bring to clinical practice Mm -hmm. with you are great, but let's be real, they're only good for like five years and then the data is updated. So uh, for myself, honestly, the first thing like in vet school, I think it's really good to start developing like where you can find these resources. And so there are some really good, really heavy, really expensive books you can buy like Cote's book or a couple of like internal medicine books, which are really good. And honestly, I like semi steal them from my colleagues who have bought them granted they, they bought them for the practice but I like flip through them and then I'm like don't know what I'm supposed to do so books definitely can be a resource but they're heavy they're hard to move and they're expensive so the other major thing is when you're in clinical practice like this is honestly what I did for like the first six months of practice when I didn't know what I was doing is the first thing I do is I go to vin <laughs> and I vin it and love it has saved my butt on so many occasions. (laughs) And then because it has all the research articles underneath when I bring it up in rounds or something and and one of my colleagues is like, are you sure that's what you want to do? I can be like, Bing, I have five resources right here. If you want to read them, go for it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. but also it's good. Then it gives a good basis for discussion um, because just because it's in research, it doesn't mean it's practical in practice. But sure. uh, Vin, that's like my first one for um, like calculations. Again, Vin, um, because they have their medications, their encyclopedia or whatever it's called for uh, medicines, and then you can also use Plums. They have an app it's amazing because then you I can have just like everything in there <laughs> saves you so much time and
2: yes. then because
0: they're updating the like they're updating the app and they're updating their resources if they decide hey we actually don't need that high of a dose for clindamycin or whatever it, they'll update it you don't have to go to the book of plums <laughs> which is really frustrating cuz like every 2 years every 3 years they're updating it and you have to buy a new book like why would yeah, you do and that and then you and just have the a app.
1: paperweight yeah
0: exactly it's a giant paperweight yeah so books online resources as a huge one and then my favorite or most frustrating is my mentor so if I can't find it on VIN or I don't know what I'm doing or I just need another pair of eyes to review like a radiograph that I've taken I panic run around the hospital and I'm like have you seen Dr. Strickland have you seen this person have you seen this person they're like have you seen this doctor and they're like no I think he's in the office and I run to the office and I go there and I'm like have you seen this person no I think he's upstairs and I run upstairs and Mm -hmm. then I go to the front desk and then eventually if I can't find him I call him like I just need a person where'd they go so Oh, that's the hard. That's like my last resort if I can't because I don't want to yeah. bother him for everything. Yeah. So that would be the main be the main sources that I use. If you have a book, great. If you have the online resources, even greater. And mm. as a last resort, people.
1: <laughs> yeah. When you have a patient in house and you have one of those moments, are yeah. you trans? I mean, I think this is more so when you first get started out. But it- is the conversation that occurs in that exam room? Hey, I don't have an answer to that question, but I can sure as hell figure it out for you if you give me five seconds or are you like,
0: I'll just be right back. (laughs) No, honestly, being honest with these clients is going to save your butt on so many levels. And also it's going to build that trust with them because of them kind of getting an idea of being like, he doesn't know what he's doing and he's trying to hide it versus oh, he wants to learn more. He wants to actually Mm -hmm. go and get guidance from another doctor. Like, and especially if you have something that you're like, you know what? This is stumping me a little bit. I want another doctor to look at it. Can I do that? And usually they're like, oh yes, please. Like, oh my gosh, another, they want another doctor to look at my pet.
1: A medical anomaly.
0: (laughs) Yes. Right. Like I had one, like the cat eye that I was telling you about, it was presenting in such a strange way that I was like, you know what? I don't really know what's going on here, but I have resources and I have people that can help me figure this out for you. So give me a second. Let me go ask this other doctor. And then we ended up referring him to a specialist. Um, So honestly, just be open. Be honest. If you don't know the answer, tell them. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, don't say, oh, I have no idea and I don't know what to do. It's I don't know what I'm looking at yet, but I have resources. Let's look into it together. Right. It's a team thing then, because then honestly, you'll have those clients that are like, well, I did this Google search, which I try not to be so, oh, my gosh, you went to Google. huh? It's all right. Well, show me what you found.
1: Because <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
0: they, they have an interest in trying to figure out what's going on with their pet. And you want to be on that team. Like you want mm-hmm. to encourage in a healthy way, because then you can say, well, we know Google can be really scary. Let's see what you found. Maybe we can throw out quite a few of these and throw out the scary ones. Right. But sometimes, especially if you have a really, really weird zebra, maybe they found the answer. (laughs) You never know. You never know. That's true. That's true. (laughs) And just realizing, like, you'll never know it all. Like, there's no way. No. So as long as you accept that. Exactly, knowing where to go and realizing that you can find a lot of enjoyment in the search, and I think that's why a lot of us go into veterinary medicine is that we we like puzzles, we like figuring things out. And I don't know, personally, I just love internal medicine and kind of getting these zeros and trying to figure out the answer, so mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Now, just before we get on with the show, a quick word from our sponsor, which is the Thrive community from us here at VedEx. If you're struggling with managing time, feeling like you're an imposter or burning out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you are not broken. You're not a bad fit for the profession much more likely you are missing some super important foundational skills no one is teaching at university. Skills that you will learn as part of our Vetex community. The Thrive community is a race accredited professional skills course where members receive training, toolkits and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more and find out if the class is a good fit for you, Visit vetxinternational.com today. Now back to the show. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Now we're going to get back to part two of That Vet Life podcast. Over to you, Mo. You're freshly
1: graduated. You're coming back to the US looking for a job. You see these new shiny corporate offices with 401ks and match savings accounts and insurance and a name over your head that if you get sued, the company gets sued and just bountiful opportunity. And then you have this hearty small animal practice that's privately owned with a mentor that's been working his tail off for 30 years and a wealth of knowledge with no regulation on how you treat your patient. Just gold standard is the point of care, how on earth do you make that decision? Because I have no idea what to do right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, on the one hand, just take a moment to appreciate the fact that you have options. It is employee market right now. You can go wherever you want. One in
1: 18. For every graduate, there are 18
0: jobs. You got it. You got it. So there is no shortage. Wherever you go... You're going to end up learning something, whether that's about yourself or whether it's about what you do want or what you don't want in a practice. So go into it with an open mind. But yeah, how do you make that transition? One of them has a lot of safety, big Mm -hmm. corporate, lots of money, lots of people, lots of lawyers, lots of safety teeny tiny practice, probably really, really loyal clientele, probably really warm and fuzzy sometimes. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) granted, sometimes, you know, they can have their weird ones. But you have, granted, you're probably at that smaller practice, you're maybe limited to some of your referrals, maybe limited to some of the specialists or what the clients can do. So in one sense, a really great learning opportunity as to do what you can with what you got, That's a great opportunity as a new grad. But -hmm. then also, the corporate will have all the bells and whistles. You can play with all the toys that are at the practice and have a really nice ultrasound. Maybe you don't have an ultrasound at this other practice. So, on the one hand, it comes down to what are your core values? And also, do you have any idea where you want to be in the next five years? That is a really, really, really stinking hard question to answer. At least it was for myself because. I'm going to be honest, what I wanted when I started practice, like where I wanted to be in five years is not necessarily the same picture right now. If you asked me the two different times, I'm going to give you two different answers. Is that wrong? Mm -hmm. No. It just means I learned a crap ton about myself and about what I want to do in practice. So there is no easy way to choose which of those two practices to go to. Chances are you could have an awesome experience at either of them. But what it comes down to is what are your core values? What kind of clinic culture do you want to be in? Um, How are you going to basically um, evaluate that clinic culture? Where do you want to be in five years and which one can actually help you pave the way for that? So If that corporate is like, no, you are locked in. You can only do this type of medicine. You have no room for vertical growth, blah, blah, blah. But we're going to pay you like 110 base salary as a new grad. And you're going to have all of these other things and fancy bells and whistles. But this other practice, they're going to offer you 90 as a base. And maybe you get some production on it. But... They have room for vertical growth. They want to train you up to be the medical director. They want to provide the CE so that you can go and do that ultrasound course. They want to make a, a base for veterinary technicians to come through and train for veterinary students, and they're super open to trying new things.
1: <laughs> You've made this in an even more impossible-sounding decision. <laughs> it's a very lucky position to be in. It is. I think- The versatility of this career path is something that is just invaluable, Yeah. but it makes for a new grad feeling like they're a kid in a candy shop and they don't know what to do. Yeah.
0: There's Um, too much choice to some degree.
1: For sure. For sure. All right. So you made the impossible decision and you're going private practice. Yay, you. You walk into the clinic the first day. You have to learn so much about your area. And most importantly to me in my head is referral centers. When do I learn about them? Who do I talk to? Is that something I bring up in my interview? Is yes. that something? Okay.
0: Yeah. Bring that up in the interview because remember, like if you want to do as close to gold standard med- like, or at least close to referral level medicine, like for myself, one of the big questions right. was who are my referral centers? How close are they? Are clients really open to going to them? In the area that I live currently, again, I have referral uh, centers coming out of my ears. I can (laughs) pick between five different ERs. They're within 30 minutes to an hour away. One of them is five minutes down the road. Amazing. (laughs) And we have a really good relationship with them. That's the other question. Do you have a good relationship with those ERs? Because there are some, again, we have so many in our area. I would choose one over the other, hands down.
1: Yeah. So
0: that is a huge question to ask in your interview to be like, okay, where are they? Do you like them? Can clients go to them? Are they willing? Um, Do they practice good medicine? Right. Definitely ask that.
1: I mean, we talked a little bit about pro sal production salary and kind of the relationship that that can create with a person's medicine. I kind of just want to hear what you have to say on that. Yeah. I don't want to lead you too far into
0: that. No, no. And it's, Granted, I only really have experience with one type of salary, just because that's the only one I've had since I graduated. So I think it would be valuable to get other people's opinions on this one. But from my own experience, like pro sales worked really well. And the big question I would always ask is, do they have negative accrual? And they should not have negative accrual. That should not exist. And do you know what negative accrual is?
1: I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So the people who don't know what negative accrual is, essentially, it's if you don't meet your production requirements for the quarter, they will then make it that you owe that amount or a certain amount in the next quarter. So then you're having to work twice as hard. So say you took like your PTO weeks. You took vacation. Congratulations. Thank (laughs) God you did for your mental health. But now you didn't make production. So now next quarter, you cannot take any PTO because you have to work your butt off to meet that production plus the negative accrual. So in your interviews, like if they are like, yeah, we have pro sal, but we have negative accrual, then you're like, scratch it off the list. Or at least bye. in my opinion, yep. I, I don't do that. Granted, some people are like, I don't really like having to go off of production because they're only offering me a really low base. And I feel like I'm having to make production. Yeah. And they don't like feeling like they're trying to get money from their clients. But honestly, I'm on that. I don't feel like I like, there are so many cases where I'm like, you know what? I can save you money here. I'm going to because I don't give a crap about um, me getting money from you. Like That's not what I want. So it really comes down to your viewpoint on it. But yes, So some people like they don't want to do full on pro sell. They just want a base. They just want a salary. They're like, doesn't matter what I make the practice. You are going to pay me this amount. And for some people that works beautifully for what their financial situation is. And again, this is one where maybe worth talking to your financial counselor at school and figuring out like okay what are the options that are out there which one would work best in my situation if it's beyond what the financial counselor can do at school like get a reference to someone who can help set you up for your 401k who can help set you up for saving for that house that you want to buy like all of these things that you have to start thinking about after you graduate which that was probably like one of the hard hardest things is being like okay here we go. Got to pay back these student loans. Got to find a place to live. Holy crap, it's expensive where I live. Mm-hmm. And um, almost half of my salary goes to housing. Like, wh- what is this?
1: What am I doing? Yeah. Right?
0: Like what is going on? So I think definitely consider getting a financial advisor if you don't already have one or one from your family.
1: I think that one thing that I found really shocking about Virginia tax program, at least, and you know, as a vet student, half my friends are vet students all over the country and that I went to undergrad with and that kind of thing. And it it seems to be a pretty cohesive thing between all these ABMA accredited universities that we have access to. Attorneys to read our contracts, personal financial advisors, and, you know, they sit us through the most painstaking two-hour lectures on, you know, how do you make your student loans, like work for your credit? And, you know, all of these, just these little pieces of the puzzle that you're not thinking about when you're I might get some backlash from this, but a glorified trade school. We're learning a job. Like we are being taught how to provide medicine and those little nooks and crannies of it that can make it way more impossible feeling to deal with. They have those resources set up. So if you're a pre-vet student listening to this, don't worry. They force you to be a grown-up slowly, I promise.
0: <laughs> and I feel like this is where we can say the opinions stated on this podcast in no way reflect <laughs> those of Virginia Tech Veterinary <laughs> School.
1: Correct. Correct. Covering ourselves there. Yeah. Okay. We just talked about a no-no in contracts. Let's talk about another one. Non-competes.
0: Oh, Like, the <laughs> one thing that I think we should just do away with
1: I agree. completely.
0: I do have a non-compete on my contract. Oh. Shocker.
1: The cardinal.
0: (laughs) Well, it was something that I didn't really think a whole ton about when I was starting. I was so focused on my mentorship clause and my contract that everything else I was like, yep, okay, good. Let's move (laughs) forward. So non competes, they are slowly going away, which is amazing. But in general, essentially, like if people don't know what a non-compete is, I don't know because we have people listening from UK in other words, a non-compete is essentially like there's a certain radius around your current practice that should you end your contract or end it before time is up, um, you cannot practice within that radius right. for a certain amount of time. Usually it's like two to five years or something like that. Or I forget. It depends on the practice. And it's a honestly a really stupid thing because... There should not be competition like that uh, between practices to poach clients. We're all here to try and help pets and their people. And if you have a non-compete, like you could be causing someone to completely uproot their life. Like you could, because of how close these practices are, even if it's within like a five mile radius, maybe you already live a certain ways out and maybe the next available practice or your dream practice is within that radius, but in order to, like, you can't practice there. And so this, that, and the other, and now you have to completely move your kids, your family, your house, like everything. That's ridiculously expensive and stupid to have to do that. So that is my own opinion. I understand initially why they came up with non-compete, but in this day and age, sayonara.
1: Yeah, it's so difficult to navigate. I mean, I think it was the AVMA. I don't. No one trusts anything that comes out of my mouth right now. But I think it's like, oh my gosh. I think they released that it was like a veterinarian on average will have like two point four jobs in their career. It's higher than I anticipated. I can look yeah. it up after this to tell you the, the number. I'm pretty sure that's it though. And okay. that it's part of what we do. We learn. We grow. We move. We learn. We grow we move or own a practice, then we learn, we grow, and we just jump that information into the head of the next veterinarian, and then you leave and you go <laughs> you go actually relax for once in your life. And something like a non-compete, I think really interferes with that and can make it really counterproductive for growth. And it's very frustrating. Okay, last question within like workplace, I think. This is kind of a out there one, but I just remember you know you were talking to me when you were fresh out of at school you, you know talking about all these experiences you had clearly you had been through clinics so those offer a wealth of opportunity but like freaking three months in or something stupid you're going from doing a spade like oh yeah i just corrected this entropion, and i was like what where did the surgical competency come from and I, this fast rate that i just cannot even fathom experiencing i mean you looked at a book, you looked at how to do it, and you did it. And I was like, <laughs> I don't even know where to get that tool belt, much less have it around my waist right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's see here. Well, part of it, I think, is like an individual comfort yeah, and interest to just try things. And thankfully, I'm at a practice where I'm encouraged to try things. I also have... A really good access to a shelter program, which granted this can come out really wrong. So I'm trying to word it correctly. But when you have shelter animals that come through that don't have an owner where you have to do, like you have to do these surgeries or else they either A, can't find a home, can't have a good quality of life. And so who else is going to do it but you? And Obviously, you should never do it if you don't have confidence in it or if you don't have someone to kind of hold your hand in it, like never put a patient's life at risk like that. But if you have confidence and you feel like you have like a good understanding of surgical basics, you can try a lot of things and you can grow in. those individual skills. So it's right. not like you're learning the procedure per se, but you're learning surgical basics. You're learning those skills that transfer to other procedures. That is the key. And Again, if you're a student, like the one thing I encourage everybody to do is get a hand on like shelter medicine because that's where you're going to get to do 20, 30 spays, neuters in repetitive succession so that you're getting not only just doing the skill once, but you're doing it 15, 20 times within a very short amount of time. and building that muscle memory and building that tissue handling that, again, will transfer to other scenarios. So right. for me, I, I thankfully had had a fair amount of shelter medicine surgery before I like launched into clinical practice. Mm-hmm. And again, I made it very specific in my mentorship that I wanted surgical experience. The new grad before me didn't make that a like a very specific thing. And so she did not get to do near as many of the upper level surgeries that I did within my first two weeks even. And that was the other thing I started. Technically, I was just shadowing for two weeks before my contract was like finalized. So I was just able to stand there in the surgeries and my mentor would be like, all right, you're holding this or you're doing this procedure. And yeah, I'm like,
1: I remember. Ah. You were I was like, i never it. even
0: learned about this procedure. And he's like, yeah. well, go look it up. And I'm like, okay.
1: <laughs> Very sink or swim. So, Very yeah. Nice.
0: And in a way it, it worked out well for me, like that level of sink or swim, like he was right there. Like I did a, a nucleation on a dog.
1: Remember that I one. I did a
0: cystotomy <laughs> on a dog. What else did I do? Oh, foreign body surgeries. Like It was just this weirdest thing where we had made the decision. We're like, you know what, we're going to focus on surgery for you. And then it was like, the universe was like, boom, here you go. And I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah.
1: Here's the caseload you always dreamed of.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so when that entropion came in, granted, like as a vet student, you're like, oh my gosh, an entropion, you're dealing with eyeballs and all right. these things. I'm going to pop it. <laughs> ah! <laughs> Freaking out. When you really look at what the procedure is, the different steps in it, you're like, oh, actually, this isn't based on the skills I have. This actually isn't too hard. Like you understand what type of suture to already think about. You understand how to handle the tissues, how to prepare the area. So even if you've never done it, and maybe it'll take you longer the first couple times you do it. That's just how life Mm -hmm. works. But you'll build your confidence in little steps. And that's the other side is you don't want to just completely be thrown into something that you're not ready for and being able to speak up on that. Because there were definitely times where I was like, like, I'm scared. Like I had a colonic tumor that we took off within my first, what was that like? That was like first three or four months. I was sweating because we went into yeah. the procedure not knowing that it was a colonic tumor. We thought it was a small intestinal tumor and it was in the colons. We had to talk to the clients in the middle of the procedure and they gave us the go ahead. And thankfully I was persistent on leak testing this sucker. So we went through that. We leak tested that thing so many times. I was like, we're testing it again. He's like, I think it's good. And I was like, no, we have to know. He's like, okay, we're done. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, a lot of it is just getting the experience early, getting good experience early to build your confidence, build your tissue handling and surgical skills so that when you are by yourself, because I did that on Tropion on a day, I didn't have my mentor. I had someone, another doctor in the hospital, kind of be like, hey, can I get your viewpoint? And he's like, yeah, they don't really work out too well for me. So good luck. And I was like, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) it went beautifully like I could not have asked for a better first entropian surgery but yeah building those skills building those those teeny tidy building blocks that's the biggest thing and granted you're going to have some setbacks you're going to have some not so great experiences along the way but again it's that self-awareness and that emotional intelligence level to say okay this is not a reflection of me as a person it's just that one learning opportunity Um, having a mentor who's able to sit down with you and say, all right, what didn't go well? What do you think you could have done better next time? Honestly, I am one of those personalities where I want someone to ask me that, but when they do, I'm like, "Eh, don't ask me those questions. I know what I'm doing and, but I have to like swallow my own pride and be like, no, you want them to ask these questions. You told them to ask you these questions. So suck it up buttercup.
1: Yeah. And I think, (sighs) from a holistic perspective, like when you're a baby surgeon and like learning these skills and, and developing that, I mean, I just did my first spay and by far the hardest part was letting the pedicle go once I decided it was ligature yes, correctly. Yes, <laughs> like you stare at it for five
0: minutes and you're like, yeah, are you oozing? Are you bleeding? What's going yeah, on?
1: <laughs> yeah. Committing to trusting your competency and knowing that you're providing that patient with the care it deserves. And that is just it's been so cool to see you develop that so quickly. It's been amazing. It makes me a little less scared. Still terrified, <laughs> but a little less scared to see someone else do it.
0: There is a healthy level of scary and everyone's pretty much familiar with like Dr. Christie on Instagram, but she yeah, yeah. she put out a really good quote a while back where it's like it's okay if you're scared. We you just kind of have to learn to do it scared.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and um that's how you build your confidence. So
1: so perfect segue there. We're going into the vet school transition. I talk about this a lot with my friends. I used to be a server at a little 1950s diner in my hometown. And I remember that my first week, I was so nervous every time I went. And I was sitting in the parking lot feeling like I was going to throw up. And I had to talk to people. And I had to do this job that I, did, I wasn't good at. And then one day, I remember pulling on me like, Oh, I'm not scared. I'm not nervous. Like I, this is, I'm just here. This mm-hmm. is what I do. And then I think about feeling that competency and something as complex and life or death as medicine. How long did that take? When did you pull up in the parking lot for the first time? And you're like, oh, I don't feel like I'm dying right now.
0: Probably six months in. Wow. Yeah, it comes in ebbs and flows. It depends on your clinical load and what's going on in life in general, but. There were months where I remember, like it wasn't like a severe imposter syndrome or anything, but I just remember like there'd be a point in the road when I'd be getting close to the practice and I would just get sick to my stomach and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm doing this again. I don't know what I'm doing and I'm scared about what I'm going to see today. Mm -hmm. And then I'd get through the day and I'd be like, I survived. (laughs) Um, That was the biggest thing. And right. it was somewhere between that three to six months that I noticed that I wasn't having that every single day. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: like for me, it wasn't like a day that I was like, oh, I'm not scared anymore. It was more of like, I'm less scared today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It
1: gives me hope. That gives me hope.
0: Yeah. And there's definitely days where even now I go in and I'm like, oh my gosh, I saw that patient and that client on the schedule and I just don't want to do it. Can I not? <laughs> yeah. That's part
1: of it, though, I feel. I don't think that it's ever truly medicine unless there's some case that you just don't feel prepared for. But then you're good at it after that.
0: (laughs) Good at it. Yeah, Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Last two things. Both kind of have to do with investing in yourself. CE credits. What are they? Are they fun? Are they not fun? What do you like? What don't you like? Where do you go?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And thankfully, there's different requirements per state and what your first year out is, Um, just because they're like, you just finished clinical training, like you don't need as much CE as everyone else. But CE can either be the most fun thing that you do, or it can be the bane of your existence. And it's up to you to choose that. So for myself, I have done a little bit of a mix of both, and so things that I enjoy doing is learning new skills. So Mm -hmm. I did a dental CE that was three days. It was kind of a semi requirement for my practice that all the new doctors they they like to put them through. That best decision I made because I just tremendously grew in my dental skills as a result. And from there, I was like, I just did full mouth extractions on an FIV positive cat with forals and blah, 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 and took out a rotted canine on a big old 80 pound dog. So all these different things that I I got, again, that basic level of tissue handling and everything for dental that I can now handle most things, most things. Um, so right. a lot to grow. <laughs> I'm not um, Amy Thompson or anything, uh, Toothy Thompson on Instagram. I've sent her so many things to be like, help, SOS. (laughs) (laughs) What do I do? I don't know what I'm doing. But from the CE perspective then, so there's like clinical things that you can do as CE. And then there are non-clinical things. So back in January, I went to the Veterinary Leadership Conference. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. It opened up so many doors for me. We don't have enough time for me to go into all of them here. But other things like the AVMA convention or FETCH or all these things. So like a combination of clinical and non-clinical CE is available. And some of them they do at like a big old theme park resort. So if you have a young family, they can go on the water slides all day while you sit in lectures. But even then you have time afterwards to go and do fun things and explore. So if there's a part of the U.S. you're like, I want to go there, figure out what conferences are going to happen there. And then also, that's a question when you're interviewed to be like, what's my CE allotment for? Like, how many days of PTO do I get for CE? That's a big one. And then what's my money account? (laughs) How much can I spend in a year on CE? And a lot of times, they'll cover enough for you to do one or two conferences in the year.
1: That's awesome.
0: With uh, COVID, so many of these conferences became online, so you didn't Mm -hmm. have to spend your CEPTO necessarily going places, but you can have like a day off at home (laughs) watching videos and how to find them if you're on like AVMA or any of the Like any, like, because there's like Vet Show, there's Fetch. So, DVM 360 will provide a lot of information about when new conferences are coming out. Like, a lot of the local referral centers in my area, they do CE things. Like, there was a dental one, there was a neurology one. Mm -hmm. Again, where I live, a little bit fancy dancy. And they were like, Yeah, we're going to go to a vineyard and do a neurology (laughs) CE. I was like, Sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) So, those kind of things do happen. And like I said, they can be fun or they can be super boring. It's up to you to to make what you want out of it and to prioritize those things and yeah. say, you know what? This is the week that the conference is. I'm putting my PTO in. I'm going to go. I'm going to get my hours for the year. Boom, done. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So we have this professional development class that we're required to be a part of for that school. And they put you through the ringer. And every, I mean, they do make you do personal finance stuff, blah, blah, blah. But one thing that they made us do this year was... um they're like, achieve a CE credit, figure it out, figure out where to look, do what you need, like, find those resources. And it is so much more accessible than I thought it was, was right? like, I like I, there's, there were these nutrition lectures that Purina gave, like, I ended up listening to one about managing, like, really hard atopy cases, and like, how to endure a diet trial when it doesn't work, what to do next? like all of these things. But it's like, This is just accessible information to anyone that wants it. That's crazy. Yeah, that is absolutely crazy.
0: Oh yeah, and things like fear-free certification. Yeah, CE. Do it, especially because if you're hint, if you're a vet student, it's free.
1: (laughs) They make free everyone's favorite word
0: in vet school. Free.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, that's a requirement for our companion animal rotation here at TAC. Perfect. I encourage everyone to do it. It is. It teaches you a lot. It does. Mm -hmm.
0: And it also gives you something to talk about in your interviews to be like, hey, A, are you a fear free practice or is just every? Because sometimes it's actually cheaper for the practice just to have everybody do the training, but not call themselves a practice. But then also see that in action. Because I've gone to some Mm -hmm. practices where like, we're fear free. And then I watch them scruff a cat and I'm like, yeah, about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Last and final question I just attended a dinner thing where you know a company tries to get you don't want to work for them kind of deal and i won't say any names but (laughs) the way that they described the first six months of working for this this company is you're making 60 to 70k in salary and then it will go up after those months are over so you're getting paid way lower because you don't offer anything yet you work night shifts, and you work around 72 to 76 hours a week for six months. I'm not saying that that is the circumstance of every single new grad going into the professional veterinary industry. However, those opportunities exist, and people will find themselves in those roles. I think once you get into your career, finding time for yourself becomes part of your habituation. But when you are first starting as a young professional, the coping mechanisms, the habits that you've implemented into your life are the ones you're carrying into adulthood. And taking care of yourself as a vet student doesn't happen. Like, it just doesn't. So when, how, what, structuring, taking care of yourself and self-care and mental health and acknowledging compassion fatigue, when you are first getting started and you feel like you can't ask for an ounce of anything, what do you do? How did you do it? Did you do it? (laughs)
0: <laughs> Good question. Ah, that's my reaction um <laughs> to all yeah, of that. Yeah. So, gosh, from the one hand, yes, exactly what you said. Like the habits that you're forming now, even in vet school, are what's going to transfer over into your first six to twelve months in practice. And one thing that you said, I feel like, is kind of a big red flag. If you go into a practice and you feel like you can't ask. For time off or or time to take care of yourself, that's a red flag. You should be able to go to your people and say, hey, I need to leave this afternoon. Like, I can't. I I can't do it anymore. Like, I need this time. You Mm. should be able to feel comfortable enough to have those conversations Mm -hmm. granted, it's not like you should just expect it to happen, but you should be in an environment where you feel supported and that you can have the conversations. So that's one thing. Like if you're not in that environment, like that's a red flag. But going back to it, yes, like it is so hard in vet school to take care of yourself and to set up those habits. But granted, it's maybe it's not going to look exactly the same. But if you're able to identify the things that you need In vet school, in order to take care of yourself, like for instance, if you realize in vet school that you hate living in a city, Mm -hmm. then make that a hard no, like for wherever you go to work, like you know that you need to be somewhere that has more green space where you live so that when you come home, home actually feels like a decompression space rather than more of a stressful space. So that's one example. Figure out what you need as an individual to take care of yourself. It may not be brought to its full representation in vet school, but at least you can like come up with these things. So when you start in practice and you have those first six months where it is hard and you feel like you're stressed out and you want to cry at times. Yeah. Which granted again, if you're in those kind of scenarios and you're crying all the time, chances are you're in the wrong place. (laughs) Like that's Mm -hmm. not where you need to be. You're not well supported. I feel like I'm going off track.
1: No, you're not. I mean, basically what you're saying is to cultivate an environment where you have the capacity to be happy and to take care of yourself and knowing those needs that you carry and finding a place that matches them. Mm -hmm. I think that's huge. And it feels I mean, we as veterinary Mm -hmm. professionals are pretty type A and bleeding heart types of people (laughs) and to do something like that feels selfish inherently, but it's not. Mm -hmm. It's not when it impacts your medicine.
0: Yes. And going back to that example you gave of those first six months, I've seen a couple of those where they take those first six months and they're actually just doing a lot of training with you. So you're doing like, maybe it's endoscopy, maybe it's like dental CE and just kind of really gaining your skills. I think those can be really valuable if you're planning on doing more of an like higher level referral type setting, maybe going into an internship. However, you really have to balance like what that upper pay is going to be. Will it compensate for those first six months? Or will you be behind the eight ball financially, depending on what your situation is? It's not like doesn't work for everybody. And it's also really important to remember that in some of these other practices, they'll have a different setup. Like you can still have. That's the big thing. It's like if you're going into practice, you should be able to if you're going pro style, you should be able to make production within those first six months. Absolutely. So if they're not setting you up for that, then you need to find another practice because you can find the mentorship and the skills and be paid a full salary. That's where base plus production can be really nice because those first three to six months when you're not making production, you still have (laughs) at least a livable salary.
1: Correct. Yeah.
0: That's one thing to consider. So. Hmm. After this, you're going to have to tell me what that practice was, (laughs) or you can tell me and the team can just bleep it out. But
1: (laughs) we wait till after.
0: Okay. Okay. We're actually a little bit coming a little bit over time here. So do you got, do you got any more questions for me? One more to wrap us up?
1: I just want to thank you for being on my podcast.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, wow. The tables have turned. Goodness. Well, I guess I can just sign my name off here and uh. hand the podcast over, you know, and just forget about me. You guys have coal. So. Oh.
1: <laughs> I want to thank you for the opportunity to talk about this stuff. These are the hard conversations. And I am I'm really grateful to have the opportunity I do with you to be able to have these tough conversations about money and professionalism and education and the good, the bad, the ugly of it. And I hope that everyone finds that opportunity somewhere because they deserve it.
0: Absolutely. And these are the questions that students are asking. They just maybe don't feel comfortable asking or they don't have someone to ask them to. So Mm -hmm. I think it was... This was definitely really valuable. And I was really proud of us. We like stayed on track. You came with like a list of questions. You brought your A game. It was awesome. We're going to have to do another one of these when you graduate. And when you're like six months into practice and be like, we're just going to check in with Cole. But Uh granted, (laughs) by that point, you're going to have like your own podcast or something.
1: No, 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 no,
2: no.
0: All right. Well, Cole, thank you for taking over the podcast. It made my job yeah. very easy. It's nice to be on the guest side of things, but I definitely want to encourage you guys to like head over to Thrive, um, join the community there. There are more conversations like this happening. There's more mentorship resources that are coming out um, all the time from the team. But also, if you join the Thrive community, you'll have access to the bonus episode that we are about to record. Cole, you didn't know that we were doing that, but we're recording a bonus episode. So surprise. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's so fed up with me at this point. But yeah, before we go down another bunny hole, I'll just say, Cole, thanks again. So, But until next time, y'all. See ya. Bye. And that's a wrap on today's episode of That Vet Life Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, before you go, I have a quick request. Now, podcasts and communities, they grow the best and they grow the biggest when the members spread the word. So if you know someone who you think needs to hear this episode, or if you found value in this episode and want to share it, go ahead and share this with your friends. And also, don't forget to head over to vedexinternational.com and enroll in the Vedex community for free to get access to a bonus version of this show you'll also get some free swag and many many other amazing benefits also leaving a review of the show on itunes we greatly appreciate it because again it just helps get the word out but until next time y'all i hope you enjoyed this episode of that bet life